0: Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today.
1: your sense-making is not the only one, or your conclusion about things is not the only possible one. So to empathize actually means to be willing to consider a competing perspective on something. In an empathetic grasp of even ISIS becomes an important thing to pursue. That I think sounds weird to many ears, but if we just hang on to what I mean by empathetic grasp, it becomes strategically vital in order to understand not only where they're coming from and what's motivating them to do it, but therefore being equipped to better offset what they're doing. When you don't have a sociopath on your hands and you actually have a, a, you know, a far more common normal soldier, they're going to reflect on the actions they've done at some point. I think we're actually obligated
0: to equip them to re- reflect well. My guest today is Kevin Cutright, who is a Lieutenant Colonel in the US Army and an Associate Professor in the Department of English and Philosophy at the US Military Academy at West Point. During his career, Kevin has served two tours in Iraq one providing fire support in a field artillery unit and one advising Iraqi border police. He has also served two tours in South Korea one coordinating fire support and then, much later, as Strategy and Plans Chief for an Army headquarters. Kevin's operational experiences have driven his interest in the ethics of military planning and conduct, the role of empathy, as well as moral injury. He holds a PhD in philosophy from St. Louis University, an MA in philosophy from Vanderbilt University, and a master's degree in military art and science from the U.S. Army's School of Advanced Military Studies. Kevin joined me today to discuss his book, The Empathetic Soldier, which was published last year. I recently finished the book and found Kevin's views on empathy to be hugely relevant, as well as critically important, both for the military practitioner, but also for those who send us to war. Kevin, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Sure, glad to be here, Matt. Appreciate the opportunity. So, before we get to the role of empathy uh, in war, uh, and uh, as I said to you before, I have really, really enjoyed the book. Uh, Thoroughly enjoyed it and and found it, and I really mean it, very important and a critical topic for discussion. Uh, But before we get to it, let's find out a little bit more about your own background. So how did you end up in the army in the first place? And then what motivated your entry into academia and ultimately a professorship?
1: Yeah. A um, lot of the American military folks uh, might come from military families, but I'm not one of them. Uh, mm. My my father was a Marine before I was born. Uh, and then he always had a, maybe a, a heart for the military. Uh, but I had no conception of of military service. I grew up in Fresno, California, where uh, there's not a large military contingent there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by high school, uh, my father wanted to uh, plant the seed with both my brother and I of opportunities that might be out there, not not just military. Uh, mm-hmm. Believe it or not, mm-hmm. he took us on a trip from California to the East Coast, and because he was a former Marine, right? We started at the U.S. Yes. Naval Academy. Uh, and w- so Once a
0: Marine, was a Marine. Marine.
1: Oh, my gosh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we went up the coast, and I mean, we stopped at Princeton University, We stopped at Yale and Harvard, but we also stopped at West Point. And uh, we came away from the trip, both of us kind of enamored by what we had seen there uh, uh, at the U.S. Military Academy. So I left high school in California and 18 days later reported to the basic training that they offer here at the U.S. Military Academy. Oh, wow. And, uh, And yeah, and then four years later in 1996, I became a field artillery officer and have
0: been serving ever since. Wow, that's amazing! So eighteen days. Uh, wow, that's that's a that's a quick turnaround. Yeah, you uh, yeah. you, you got to enjoy a few days off at least uh, <laughs> before the uh, shaved your head. Few.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I definitely had family members who uh, who were a bit flabbergasted. Right, like what is Kevin Cutright doing, thinking about the military? Hmm. And you, one relative, in fact, who asked me why, why I wanted to be a baby killer, and it was uh, a kind of lingering concern, maybe that. That she'd had from from the whole Vietnam era oh, of things, and mm-hmm. um, I didn't want to be a baby killer. Mm, mm. So, uh, yeah. In in many regards, I think even some of that reception of of serving in the military and then launching to this place uh, bolstered maybe my own interest in morality and in how is it that you can be a soldier and still maybe be on the moral up and up, mm. those kinds of things. Mm, mm. Um. So I said I branched field artillery, and honestly, you had a, uh, some incredible experiences in, in, with both the leadership and with the missions. Lo and behold, the way our U.S. Army runs things is one of the broadening assignments you can apply for when you're a senior captain is to come teach the military academy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I got one of those opportunities, uh, and that's what uh, triggered the, the master's degree at Vanderbilt University and then teaching for three years. And I was hooked. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the classroom. I loved working with cadets and talking through these difficult topics. Um, I taught philosophy and ethical reasoning with a focus towards the end of the semester on military military ethics in particular, the Just War tradition. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I left hoping for an opportunity to come back. Uh, mm-hmm. and And for the last five years, lo and behold, I've I've had my dream gig of of being back. And I finally had to abandon the the cross cannons. Symbol of uh, field artillery. When I became a permanent professor here, All right, a so military tenure that they offer, and I'm officially now what they call an academy professor in in Army parlance. Uh,
0: right. And so, so they won't basically post you out of there. So you you won't be posted out of there as a, in another uh, lieutenant colonel position somewhere else. I think nope. this is yep, nope, no, not this this, this yeah, not anymore. my right. it's my
1: permanent gig now. Yeah, until retirement. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just I look back and I just I'm very thankful because I didn't know that there was such uh, a route you could walk where you have one foot in the operational experiences and yet one foot in some serious scholarship and academic uh, mm. uh, duties. And, um, and that's just been a, a, a great combination
0: for me. I think that's a great uh, advantage of the US system. I, we don't have anything like that in Australia, which is, uh, in my view, uh, a deficiency. Because we have people who are you know, highly educated in the military ethics space. Who've got useful experiences, you know, who've who've taught this at, at quite prestigious universities, uh, military academies, etc. Uh, but we don't really have too many. S- certainly, no uniformed personnel, unless I'm mistaken, unless I unless there's something I don't know. But we don't have any uniformed personnel. Uh, certainly, when I went through uh, the Australian Defence Force Academy or uh, the Royal Military College, um, there are no uniformed PhD doctors. Uh, who are teaching and facilitating these types of discussions, which I think is uh, a deficiency, because you bring not only do you bring the academic aspect into it, but of course you bring in the operational, real lived experience of how this applies in combat or in a war zone.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really neat opportunity to to try to embody the soldier scholar mm. uh, cliche that we hear about and talk mm. about a lot, mm. um, and so that's just been a neat um, a neat role to try and play. Mm. You know, you're right, in a way, it could be considered a deficiency it It's certainly a, a fairly costly way to go, right? i You know who else really wishes they could do this is the u s state department they right. they, uh, they wish too that they had a bench of personnel such that they could afford to have several at mm. graduate school as a full time student for years and then, you know mm. serving in a kind of a teaching assignment like this. Mm. Um. So I guess that, I,
0: I guess do that think it's important is, yeah. for
1: for us in the U.S. military and, and specifically U.S. Army to recognize maybe
0: the yeah yeah yeah. The luxury that it is. Yeah, so, yeah yeah of course yeah because if I just think about it I mean to take out you know uh, uh, you know lieutenant colonels uh, majors whatever uh, to go and start doing their I mean I'm I'm currently doing my PhD I'm I'm a major on a on a fellowship you know I'm very fortunate to be on a on, on a scholarship basically for this year. But that's uh, again few and far between, and it's uh, certainly not. There's no pathway necessarily towards uh, some teaching somewhere in one of our military establishments. Uh, it was basically my great fortune that the establishment uh, has given me this year to pursue further studies. Could have been any other studies. Uh, not a PhD. Could have been a masters, uh, which is generally what mm. the, yeah. what it's designed for. But it's just you know my luck of the draw. Uh, but it's there's no like you like you making the point. We don't have the the luxury to be able to remove people we don't have enough people as it is anyway to fill the operation roles right. Right. let alone pull them out to then go and in, uh into the teaching establishments as much as that might be quite beneficial really long term
1: right right uh and i've really been encouraged to see some of the senior leaders really uh endorse the idea too right mm-hmm. i mean uh mm-hmm. uh general molly for one mm. has always been a consistent fan of the setup as it is mm-hmm. and uh and several others right i mean it's uh it's well endorsed now again uh, if it, if you can get the resources to do it it's it's a really incredible model i think to yeah. uh to employ and I say that having been on the receiving end of it as a cadet um, mm. and then not realizing how much I would grow on the teaching end of it, mm. uh, both my first assignment for a three year assignment and then and then this last one of the last five years, it's a great chance to continue growing in all sorts of ways too, okay.
0: yeah. yeah, yeah undoubtedly uh okay, so uh let's get to. The topic of your, well, at least of this book, uh, I'm sure you're focused on uh, studying and researching a lot, a lot of other things to do with just war tradition. And then I think, well, I believe history. Obviously, if you're part of history and philosophy department, uh, but how did you stumble upon empathy, and why empathy? Why has that? Uh, why have you? Why did you find yourself drawn to it?
1: Yeah, um, it sounds awkward, but would this be the moment to say that my views are my own <laughs> and not, not those of West Point or or the U.S. Army or the U.S. government? But absolutely Uh, my apologies that's uh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah. of course no no
1: no. i uh i i'd forgotten it earlier anyway but uh but yeah how do i get interested in empathy shoot i uh i landed myself at the school of advanced military studies of fort leavenworth kansas where you have to write uh, an extensive thesis on something to do with operational planning and in preparation for that assignment we're in courses where we're reading a whole bunch of our own doctrine uh and lo and behold I can't believe it, but there in our counterinsurgency doctrine, the, the big rewrite of 2006, the word empathy is in there. Mm. And the more I explored it, the more, for me, it came to capture so much of what I saw as shortcomings over mm. my first deployment to Iraq, 0304, and my second deployment to Iraq in, from 2009, 2010. Uh, and I just saw it capturing, you know, almost as a one-word after-action review comment Um uh, a lack of empathy, maybe, driving so much of uh, of what had gone wrong, and in some ways, uh, I think there's actually some important accounts of where it helps explain what went right when it comes to the winning of hearts and minds, or uh, or the rest of the tasks involved with counterinsurgency. So credit to that faculty at at that school, they they allowed me the latitude to run with this kind of crazy idea of hey, I want to look at empathy and its relevance for operational planning, and. Uh, and so that's what started it. The more I dug into it, uh, the more I, the more I started running across two different confusions that seemed to, seemed at play. One was a big confusion over what empathy actually is. Um, you know, the, the the literature's got a number of competing theories and and uh, and conclusions about it, and it makes it so easy maybe to just dismiss <laughs> empathy either as a real thing or at least as a real precise thing. And then the second confusion I think has to do with. Uh, the military profession, what it means to be a soldier, what the nature of soldiering is—is is really meant to be all about. Mm, mm. Depending on what your conclusion is, there it can it can either leave room for empathy, having a role to play, or in fact, uh, no role to play. Mm, mm, so, mm, mm. so yeah, so so Sam's that school of Advanced military studies was the first opportunity maybe to really explore those those confusions uh, on my own. I titled the. Uh, the monograph thesis, empathy for carnivores, uh, <laughs> hoping that that would at least at least get the faculty and my peers to
0: like open the page, right, and, and mm. see maybe What's, what it, what it involved. <laughs> great, catchy title because I, that, that's what I was going to say. I mean, empathy in many ways uh, comes across as uh, you know it's too soft, it's a little bit too uh, touchy feely, it's too emotive, it's too emotive. But as you know, as you and I talked about, I mean, I, I teach empathy to, to 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 some of our uh, students uh, in, in the Australian Army. Uh, And and I I consider it to be a a principal tool uh, for developing, you know, relationships of trust with anyone, uh, especially those in a a foreign context, uh, in an operational setting, uh, where you're trying to, you know, establish some sort of common goals and and a common purpose. Um, And I really want to pick up on the points you made about Iraq, because that to me, you know, it strikes me as as relevant, uh, why you saw where we failed through empathy and, and maybe even some successes. But before we get to that, maybe it's useful to just define empathy. So everybody's on the same shit of music. Uh, So you know, as as you have done in the book, uh, because I think it really sets the context as to what empathy is, but more importantly, what it's not.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, After canvassing a bit of the literature, I mean, in the end, the the definition I come down to, as I express in the book, is it's an experiential understanding of what another feels or thinks, not just a theoretical understanding that the other feels or thinks a certain way. Right? So it's not just the ability to attribute to another, oh, they're happy, but maybe having some grasp, some understanding of what that means to, mm-hmm. to experience happiness sort of, mm-hmm. or to feel that way. It mm-hmm. um, comes in degrees. Obviously, um, we're going to be able to empathize more or less, uh, partly due to our own experiences to draw from and partly due to our own imaginative ability that we can apply well or poorly. But yeah, the fundamental... Definition of empathy, I want to say, is that experiential understanding of the mm. other, uh, understanding yeah. their experience, Yeah. not yeah. agreeing with the experience. Right? Here's one of the immediate confusions that can come up so quickly is to yeah. understand another. I have students sometimes who think that what I'm trying to ask them to do is agree with the other, and yeah. so we have to spend some time separating
0: those. Concepts. Yeah, that's a hugely important, uh, and you're right. That would that's the first thing that people go for. I mean, uh, the one I use the 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 definition I use for my lessons, I use Brene Brown. I mean, purely because she's She's an academic, obviously, but she's also very, very good at popularizing uh, some rather difficult topics. I think uh, in, in, in easy, in easy to understand concepts. Uh, but uh, the, the way she defines it is uh, is is connecting to the emotion underpinning an experience rather than the experience itself, uh, which I think is very much, uh, yeah. very much in line with what you're saying, right? And 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 I use that as a vehicle for my discussions because coming from a a rich Western nation, where you know when we go deploy somewhere. Uh, generally speaking, the places we deploy are vastly different to, you know, the country we come from. So it's very difficult for people to contextualize and connect and visualize an experience, right? I mean, it, m- most of the people that I've taught don't know what it's like to, uh, have lived through three wars, to have lost half your family, to have, uh, changed, uh, who you swear allegiance to, uh, four times, et cetera, which is something we've seen, you know, yeah. in the more recent wars. But everybody understands the emotion underpinning those, right? So everybody knows what fear feels like, what joy, as you mentioned, you know, joy and happiness, what they feel like. Uh, so it's about recognizing and connecting, yeah. in my view, to that uh, to that emotion that you know might be underpinning a given experience, which is why I really find um, uh, Brené's quote quite neat because it, 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 it at least for me it gives me a, a useful vehicle to then open up a discussion as to how our experiences. Might differ, but we're all human, ultimately, we all feel the same emotions. Uh, and that seems to at least uh, in my limited experience of teaching this stuff, seems to resonate with a lot of people and and I'm sure that's that happens to you as well when you start talking about the actual connecting to that emotional piece uh, that, that you're referring. Yeah,
1: to. yeah. yeah, can I nerd out for a minute?
0: please. Uh, yeah. 100%. Because, uh,
1: because I in the research I was doing one one, I think brene Brown's definition is completely helpful, right? I mean I think yeah, it is mm-hmm. capturing maybe the heart of what we mean by by empathy. And sociologists have this distinction between an etic, etic understanding mm. mm-hmm. of 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 others uh, versus an
0: emic, emic mm. understanding. Mm. Have you actually run across these terms? Uh, in your book, I have, and I've highlighted them as a question, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, as as a sub question uh, to, to to perhaps dive into. And and I welcome yeah. it. Go. Yeah, yeah, 100%, I, I, yeah. Hundred percent. I found so, it to be a very useful uh, definition to contextualize what we're talking about.
1: And I think it helps capture maybe at least one element of what I mean by empathy being a an after action review uh, yeah. word uh, for yeah for Iraq yeah and and I I can't help but think Afghanistan even though I actually yeah. haven't deployed to Afghanistan mm-hmm. uh, so an edict understanding is this uh, this grasp of everything that's observable so so say you're again present you're a sociologist looking at a group I don't know maybe they're they're uh, conducting some kind of a habitual practice or tradition. And the edict understanding would mean this grasp of when they're conducting the ceremony, uh, with what artifacts, Mm -hmm. who in the group is leading it, maybe what time of day they're doing it or location they're doing it. I mean, all these things that are observable Mm. facts Mm -hmm. of, of, Mm -hmm. uh, tradition or an act Mm -hmm. or a ceremony, Mm -hmm. the emic understanding, the E M I C would be the meaning behind those actions, Mm. uh, for that group. And, uh, uh, maybe the way in which the the action or the ceremony connects with their overall worldview or, or sense that they make of the world. So I mean, all these kind of immaterial, um, inside knowledge, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One thing I it clicked with me when I ran across this was like um, I couldn't help but think of the pre-deployment preparation that both of my <laughs> yeah. units received before we headed out to Iraq. You know, we get yeah. the. Yeah. We get the Iraqi phrases, so we might be able to bungle our way through how to say hello and how are you doing. We get the uh, pretty rapid and rough cut tossing out of facts of, hey, you're going to see this thing called Ramadan. It's going <laughs> to occur in these times, mm-hmm. last kind of this long, and uh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> very little mention maybe of
0: what it means at all or yeah. any of that. And so Context, yeah, the nuance, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so, and of course, all this was under the label of cultural knowledge and and Im- improving our our ability to build bridges and stuff. And there's a point where, kind of as I argue in the book, my goodness, I think someone equipped with all sorts of that cultural knowledge could still fail to build bridges really easily. I mean, I watched some of it. Maybe mm-hmm. peers mm-hmm. who they still had a kind of disdain, right, for mm-hmm. for locals or for mm-hmm. things that were just different, right, whether or not they you know, had disdain specifically for Iraqis or just had a disdain for things that were just it's so outside just, yeah. of their, their own experience, right? Yeah. Um, and so that lack of empathy right there, I think, uh, prevents the bridges from getting built mm-hmm. uh, regardless yeah. of how much how much knowledge you have on Islam or on yeah. Iraq's history and those kinds of things. Yes. Now, yes. maybe it, yeah, yeah. the more you study that stuff, it could be the more you actually um, might generate empathy or an mm-hmm. empathetic grasp of another but it's not guaranteed and i think it's really contingent upon maybe the character of the person or
0: or a kind of openness or commitment right to mm, um uh, to doing so it's not necessarily automatic and also naming it which is what i think your book does it names it right it gives it a name right it's a, i mean we could use emic as an example emic yeah. sounds academic sounds esoteric sounds out there uh and i probably confidently can say that most people in uniform would go, F-tude. uh I'm not going to get, an, yeah, exactly, time out. I'm not doing anemic understanding of Afghanistan. Uh, but whereas if you start talking about empathy, empathy is something we do so naturally, all of us, to our children, to our spouses, to our partners, to our family and friends. Uh, we get to experience, we recognize their world because it's similar to ours. So therefore it's a lot easier to build that bridge and, and feel uh, or, or see the world through their eyes. Whereas, as you made the point so eloquently, when you go to an Afghanistan, to an Iraq, where everything is different, I mean, like it's not just the obvious overt traffic rules or not, uh, buildings or or not, terrain, dress, the obvious kind of, the the, uh, etic, as you said, the etic, uh, uh, am I pronouncing that right? Right. Um, That's kind of obvious overt uh, uh, ones and zeros, so to speak. But even the subcontext, the the jokes, humor, the way emotions are expressed is vastly different. And of course, for those who are not accustomed to that, to deal with that, uh, it can be quite frightening and scary. And of course, you know, can push them away. And it's very easy to then paint uh, an us and them and drive a wedge between those uh, who you're there trying to help if you do not employ empathy as a credible tool to really try and see... Yeah, to, to to give context, to give color to the black and white that you're seeing in front of you.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and even a uh, a well-intentioned Western mm-hmm. soldier deployed out mm. that direction uh, can really fall short, right, without an exercise of, of genuine empathy. There mm-hmm. is a, another element of my research. There was a great lecture I ran across. I think it was the Archbishop of Canterbury. I can't remember mm-hmm. the gentleman's name right now, but he had served in that capacity. He was giving this lecture on the problems of empathy. And and he points out that, hey, one problem is we we might approach circumstances where we know we need to empathize with this attitude of, I know exactly how you feel. And mm. and then mm. start rolling from there. When in fact, mm. he points out, no, 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 no. No, we need to start from the position of, I have no idea how you feel. And, and then from only from there do you get it maybe into genuine empathy. Mm. And so this, the well-intentioned soldier or, or something like that, might still make this error of projection right and and projecting one's own attitudes or experiences or ways in which they would feel in mm. whatever they're saying of those observable facts right well they well the the locals must feel the same way they must mm, how could there mm, possibly mm. be another way of experiencing this yeah, uh, yeah, that yeah 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 would be another way in which things have gone wrong because the projection ends up contributing to very detailed plans on things that in the end aren't going to be received in the way that's being assumed
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, you're completely misinterpreting what you're what you're seeing based on your own bias and the own your own lens that you're bringing into it. Despite the fact that you might think uh, you might, you know, fool yourself into believing that this is exactly what they want. Because in, in, even if they tell you, "I want a well here," well, that might not actually be what's really behind it. But that's that's merely <laughs> right. what you're getting because that's all you're giving the opportunity to uh, for them to provide, right? Which is. Right, you know, right, and and we've seen that time and time again. You know, it's a well, you know, what what can we fix? Oh, well, well, you know, we need a well here, we need a road there, but that might not actually exactly, yeah. Right? Uh, or you know, my cousin's house over there has been uh, bombed, so let's fix that house, right? Of course, right. right there is right. that too. There is that too, right? Which is uh, which is you know, and I don't even put this into the context of your, your Afghans or Iraqs. I mean, uh, you know, this is Bosnia. This is this is any any situation yep. where exactly it's humans, right? Where there are haves and have nots and somebody who has comes and offers you something, Hey, you'll take what you can. And you know, I put myself into this. I would do exactly the same thing. Um, but there's one, one point that you uh, you make in the book and i really liked, uh, and that is that empathy kind of goes beyond knowledge and understanding of culture, which is what we've been talking about so far, these kind of cultural briefs, history and, and, and customs. How well is this understood do you think? I mean, how, is this a confusion that you're still, face, wrestle with, uh, even with the cadets that you teach, uh, that empathy is kind of thrown in amongst this kind of culture, history, customs piece.
1: Yeah. Um, I think there is still a confusion, yeah, on, on what empathy is asking for or, or what it's gesturing at because it does move beyond the mere facts of the other person or the other group's situation. It does in the end speak, I think, to a bit of an attitude there's even a way in which, in order to properly empathize, you actually have to be uh, willing to take on a bit of vulnerability, and I guess I do mean that in some kind of emotional sense, sure, uh-huh. uh, because you are, ex- if you're truly empathizing, you might be exposing yourself to a kind of vicarious experience that could be really painful, mm-hmm. and so, um, so there's that kind of vulnerability. But then the another kind of vulnerability that empathy demands is a sense in which your sense-making is not the only one, or your conclusion about things is not the only possible one. Mm. So, to empathize actually means to be willing to consider a competing perspective on something. Mm. And that's also something that can be really hard to do, right? Uh, mm-hmm. um, particularly under the stress of a deployment, when you're already maybe just trying to hold things together in your own mind for your own family or for your battle buddies, Uh it's a high calling really maybe to also Mm -hmm. then say uh we think we're here for all of this and we think we ought to be received in this manner um well is that really reasonable to ask of them you know Mm -hmm. to be received in that matter and whatever else and the more you think through it maybe the more reasonable it becomes but it does give you this irritating reality now of two competing perspectives that you've got to reconcile Mm -hmm. Mm yourself so this would be ways in which i think though it goes beyond the The cultural knowledge, in that it actually does involve a kind of fundamental respect of these other humans as humans. They therefore, their experience needs to be somehow accounted for and uh, appreciated in the small sense, and at least coming to grasp what what it is that they are seeing and feeling and thinking. Mm. Again, it does not entail agreeing with that that conclusion about things. But it does require maybe abstaining for one second from our own judgments about stuff in order
0: to properly grasp um, mm, what mm. the experience is for that other. And it's the necessary grasp if you want to win the hearts and minds, right? I mean, and I think that's the that's very much the point you made about Iraq and Afghanistan, without a doubt. I mean, if you're, if you're not, you know, with the two competing uh, views or narratives, one that exists in you, in your mind, and the one of those who you're trying to help, ultimately, uh, if those aren't yeah. aligned, uh, then, uh, you know, you're working to, to, to different purposes and ultimately, you know, you can be A, B exploited, uh, that's one and B, you're not going to achieve the mission, mm. and That's right. which is, right. which, I, which I think and is what, what you were talking about Iraq. Yeah.
1: It, well, and this is why, I mean, I, I, uh, especially my second deployment, 09 to 10, I was in this advisory effort that I was, I mean, it, we, we had this whole platoon of soldiers. We'd actually rotate out every three months. We got a new platoon that was kind of providing a security and transportation as we'd run out to the border and check border police but a number of the soldiers you know we we'd have these conversations on the six hour mrap drive how tough <laughs> were and uh so many of them right almost wanted the relief of just being asked to kick indoors uh you know like mm. that's what they signed up for it's yeah. what they trained for and all that stuff and
0: and uh that's the easy part right that's the easy one that's the that's the, it's, well, one and zeros. It's, and one it's one ultimately right right uh, it's the dangerous yeah, one but it's yeah, the ones yeah. and zeros yeah yeah, yeah. Right,
1: and and this—I uh, mean, I'm sure you see it in among your ranks. I know I see it among mine, where a number of folks want to latch onto those ones and zeros version of of military mm. service, right? And let's just stick to that. Uh, mm. Feel more comfortable with it. F- certainly feel more trained to do it, and all that. Um, and so it's a real test of professionalism in a way. If we're going to receive the objectives that we're given to us and say, okay, what do those objectives demand? Well, guess what? They they demand an empathetic approach, which. By the way, I'm not even convinced empathy is is relevant for just counterinsurgencies i, I mm-hmm. think in there's yeah. sorts of ways it's relevant you know for for more more conventional uh showdowns as well so I think empathy's got uh kind of epistemic or knowledge based benefits as well as moral uh benefits mm-hmm. uh the epistemic mm-hmm. thing what I mean by that is it's uh it keeps us treating enemies as more, in a more realistic manner than we otherwise might mm-hmm. um, you know, where we might wrongly assume too little of them right either they're not smart or they're or they're not motivated or or not any of these things it's so so easily done right but a, a genuinely empathetic grasp of an enemy helps you best anticipate what they're actually capable of doing mm, mm. well that's a that so it's got a great pragmatic yeah,
0: benefit But yeah, then I mean just look at the wars we fought i mean uh, and and uh, you know, I've, I've talked to Dave Kulcullen and when we mentioned him previously uh, in our discussion. You know, he makes the point quite credibly. Uh, we haven't won a war, really, uh, a, a real war since uh, World War II. Uh, and, you know, that's, we've got to stop and ask. I mean, how many times have we judged the Viet Cong as, uh, you know, uh, given them uh, derogatory names and dehumanized them into something uh, less than us? How many times have we done that to the Taliban or, or any of the insurgents in Afghanistan, uh, uh, to ISIS in Iraq? Uh, etc. Right, because we fail to recognize that. Hold on a minute. You know, just because we have all the guns and all the bells and whistles, uh, and all the precision munitions, etc., doesn't mean we have all the knowledge uh, to be able to actually well be superior <laughs> on the battlefield, uh, as we've right. seen. We haven't right.
1: been. <laughs> <You know. laughs> right. And and somewhere in here, there's probably there really probably is an important threshold that we need to recognize. Of, of there's a point where you might ask the military to do too much. Uh, mm-hmm. Or or ask them to be ready to do any number of things across too wide of a spectrum. Yeah, uh, this is one reason yeah. I'm glad on the in the U.S. military or in the U.S. Army we've actually stood up these uh, security force assistance brigades. Mm-hmm. Um, and this we've carved out a portion of the element that's going to be really good at this advisory thing. That for right. so many of us in the conventional army, being tasked to do it, it just felt like a complete. Uh, foreign matters, right? Yeah, like it's it just yeah, so yeah. Out, of yeah. our, out of our... out uh, of It's, a, it's uh, a
0: different language, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it was frustrating maybe there for a while, for a few years, right? This assumption that, hey, you take a brigade combat team, give them six months advance notice, and they can be ready to do anything, right? Across mm. that entire spectrum. That's mm. just that's just a bit of that's
0: hype. so interesting. So, I haven't heard of that. So maybe uh, if you're comfortable to talk about it, uh, to give a little bit more insights into what are these brigades and, and what are they future roles intended to be?
1: Yeah, I, uh, uh, my knowledge is fairly shallow, but uh, uh, not happy to talk about the Security Force Assistance Brigade. I want to say it's been now, trying to do the math right, in the last decade, I think, mm-hmm. would be the, the the real safe time span in which uh, there, there's there been this kind of sequential standing up of ultimately the goal was five SFABs. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, scattered across a few different army posts, and they're and they're regionally aligned. So the idea is that that the members of these advisory brigades would be able to dive quite a bit deeper than your your typical brigade combat team turned, mm. advised mm. this brigade. You know, that was one mm. of the turns back in the day. Yeah, um, They're also composed, by the way, uh, again, as I've watched it uh, come about, the battalion commanders are all second-time battalion commanders. They've already right. been a battalion commander, maybe in a conventional uh, unit. And I believe the rank structure goes down to only a uh, staff sergeant.
0: So okay. They're, they're small. Senior right? soldiers. They're, they're yeah.
1: composed of these smallest level of these advisory teams all the way up to an overall brigade staff that's maybe helping
0: oversee training and operation. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah, so that's yeah, very insightful. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that, I mean, it, it, it's, it's reassuring to hear that obviously, you know, the lessons. Uh, from your Iraqs, Afghanistan, et cetera, are, are being learned somewhere. Uh, and there's uh, recognition that, well, we haven't done it necessarily well. Uh, and I put our, put Australians in this as well. I mean, we haven't done it any better, uh, if at all, uh, than uh, you guys, right? Uh, in, in the understanding of the context, perhaps uh, we have a different cultural context uh, in how we apply uh, and how we carry uh, out operations. Uh, but we're also a much smaller force and we can uh, also invest a little bit more Individual knowledge in our know, individual soldiers, uh, and that perhaps uh, you guys do. But also, we don't do is uh, we really haven't done any of the heavy lifting uh, that uh, you guys try to do, uh, which is, uh, 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 again, uh, again, perhaps a side point. But um, one of the things that I really want to touch on is, is uh, operationalizing empathy. So, for the soldier on the ground, if we're imagining the soldier who is empathetic to the people that he or she are trying to help. Uh, you know, solve whatever problems they might be facing. Doesn't empathy, and you talk about them needing to be vulnerable. Doesn't that vulnerability also leave them open for exploitation? Uh, and you know, we've see, you know, again, I've, I've I can put myself uh, in other people's shoes, and I've seen how uh, someone someone's empathy can be exploited by a skilled manipulator. Uh, to and I don't even want to say the manipulator, but somebody who's skilled at surviving. Uh, which oftentimes is right. you where know, people, the very people that we were trying to help, right? They've survived, uh, in the, you know, Afghan Iraqi context, uh, decades of war. Uh, there's a reason why they're alive, uh, and now they're dealing with us. Uh, and if we show too much empathy or not too much, but even if we show empathy, uh, we might be taken for a ride. How do we, how can we address that? Yeah. I
1: mean, I think we address it by recognizing empathy is not some kind of silver bullet that, that solves all, mm. mm-hmm. all problems, uh. Uh, that, that's absolutely something I, I try to mention a couple times in the book that, Hey, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to keep empathy from getting zero attention. Uh, yeah. not, not yeah. suggesting that it needs, it, it's all that needs attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think, uh, I think our employment of empathy, our practice of it, uh, absolutely needs to be balanced by, you know, maybe some healthy suspicion balanced by, um, real genuine critical thinking and deep, uh, grasp of even maybe the, you know, an edict understanding or, uh, can, can still contribute maybe until, mm-hmm, in terms exactly. of helping us grasp what's going on around us um, and maybe help us uh, identify some contradictions maybe that all of a sudden become a hint of like, wait a minute, what, what mm-hmm. this person's telling me this is a bit of a false story or something. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, so I think empathy balanced with other skills, traits, and virtues um, is one way to, to offset the concern. Um, it's also, you know, also probably quite important to be uh, to be brainstorming with others, right? So it, mm. as much as possible, anyway, right? It's not a, a thing you're trying to navigate alone. That's going to have to be the case given certain scenarios or certain circumstances. But to me, it it emphasizes the need to maybe be explicit about empathy, recognize its benefits, and along the way also, you know, explicitly recognize its limitations or ways mm. in which mm-hmm. um, it can lead to uh, to certain excesses yeah um and then also leads to a kind of management of empathy where you uh uh ins- do as much as possible to ensure that the length of the deployment or the uh or the um difficult details that occur maybe are not chipping away at the empathy in a way that really skews their their judgment of what counts as empathetic or um, or their ability to exercise any of it
0: Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's it. that's that kind of degradation of empathy over time, or, or just of compassion, or of just yeah, even your own sense of uh, yeah. uh, right or wrong uh, over time can degrade, uh, and uh, ultimately can lead to behaviours that uh, later we call war crimes, which is something that uh, of course uh, perhaps we're wrestling with uh, uh, in Australia, and ultimately we could we could call those allegations as uh, the absolute lack of empathy. Uh, where you know you've just you, you've become so callous to the suffering and pain of others that it's completely irrelevant uh, that they that they are completely irrelevant um, given given how you're feeling uh, which of course is is is, is hugely hugely uh, dangerous uh, and also me to the next point that I wanted to cover cover is that's uh, and which I really really liked uh, in the book is uh, that the principle of right intention you make the point that the principle of right intention is all but absent from the scholarship of Usud bello or the conduct of war, which of course the right intention, uh, as we know, is sits fairly squarely in the usud bello or the, the 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 justification for a uh, given war uh, or declaration of a given war by our milit by our political leaders, uh, but it's absent in the conduct of, in other words, absent in the uh, actual carrying out of uh, military operations by the soldiers uh, commanders on the ground. What do you mean by that? Uh, and why is that? Why is that? Firstly, why is that really important? Uh, and then how does empathy play into it? Uh, I, I found this to be a very, very, very critical part of your book.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, right intention is, is defined you know, by the earliest just war theorists would be this uh, commitment to uh, a just and lasting peace uh, uh, between
0: the warring parties. So, um, ba- Basically, can, can we just explain that a little bit more? Because I, I just don't want to glaze yeah, over there, yeah, yeah. Right? because I think that's a really important point. What do we mean by a just and lasting peace, and when, where does that play into it? I mean, how, how does that play into the just war tradition or the conduct of any war?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, so another element of use ad bellum, right, from the just war tradition, would be this fundamental notion of just cause—that hey, you're, you're not allowed to initiate a war, right, unless you have a uh, a, a justified cause that warrants that level of um, uh, of of trouble, of death, of uh, interruption of another uh communities' uh, livelihood, uh, the ex- expense of blood and treasure and so a just cause you know might be one where where fundamental rights are just being um, uh, obliterated on a, on a large enough scale um, and there's no other options you know that can address the the injustice besides war so you've got this last resort being met. Right intention uh, made its way as another, Another like principle that needs to be fulfilled, because there's this recognition of this thing that's maybe fundamental to human nature, right? Funny how a country might have a just cause, and yet their actual intention might be something else. Of hey, I uh, I'm being treated unjustly, you know, by by country Y, and so country X uh, is going to initiate a war against country Y. And yet, in reality, if 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 you if you could listen to their private deliberations. You Know they actually just really hate Country Y and they can't wait to secure all the additional um ports and you know sea access and stuff that Country Y has. And they've got oh, and by the way, they've got all these uh you know uh rich mineral deposits and other things. And then all of a sudden, the actual motivation for the war is no longer addressing the the injustice, right? You're talking Jeff
0: about God proxy itself? wars, right? You're literally
1: talking about proxy wars, uh, right? So- uh uh, possibly you know what? yeah absolutely yeah. but e- even in a direct war right but mm-hmm. but yeah absolutely with proxy wars too it, it can be very easy to there be a legitimate just cause and yet the actual uh motivation to participate is for all these other self-serving reasons not mm-hmm. the just cause itself so right intention is this separate principle that's laid out of like hey you got to actually to 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 be morally justified you got to actually want to address the injustice and that's got to be the heart of. Of what's driving you to war, Mm -hmm. it it can't be these other self serving things. Yeah, that's the actual private motivation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also, uh, you know, big picture from the just war tradition, the idea is that any given country, in and of itself, has got a legitimate right to exist. And even if it acts aggressively and maybe commits injustices against another, the point is to police up the injustice the point is not to necessarily eradicate you know the mm. aggressive country altogether mm. um mm. 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 The just which is a just and lasting peace change. component yeah
0: yeah
1: right all right and so a just and lasting peace would be one that's maybe <laughs> involving a kind of reconciliatory coexistence if you will mm. not mm. not uh what in some of the literature they'll call a negative peace uh, but yeah. more of a positive peace negative peace would simply like you know what no one else is left standing so sure, you're at peace, but it's because yeah. you're the you're the only country remaining, or something. Um, mm-hmm. That's not the peace, maybe that uh, being referred to when we start talking about a right intention towards a just and lasting peace.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think it, 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 the way I read it in your book, and I, and, I, and I really kind of visualized it well in my mind was that every war should be fought, and every war I you know ideally is fought with that in mind, right? That we are only fighting this war because we've met these thresholds. And it is only in order to achieve a just and lasting peace. If a just and lasting peace is not our disposition or is not the way we're fighting this war, then empathy slides out so quickly. Because if, if our intention is, if, if, if it creeps into our mind that it is about merely about killing or killing the other, right? It's a zero sum game, it's you or me, that disposition in itself neuters any potential empathy that you might develop towards your enemy or 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 or, 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 or combatant uh, that you might be facing on the ground, which is why I thought it was such a poignant point to make that starting a war and really implanting this idea in our warfighters from the top all the way down to the lower soldier that the ultimate aim is to achieve a just and lasting peace and to really inculcate that as much as we might say that and it kind of rolls off the tongue I don't think again we talk about the depths of what that actually means and how we achieve that as the ultimate victory right and that's that's victory in a way and and how do we achieve that or is that that's one that's one metric of how we how we measure that we have been successful in a particular campaign or war right
1: maybe the maybe the highest measure too. Right? yeah like yes uh you know maybe the ultimate measure that that matters more than Maybe the more quantifiable measures that we'll so often settle for, but mm, uh, mm,
0: mm.
1: yeah, uh, look, some of the some of these early just war tradition thinkers, it's it gets to be kind of fascinating when they get into this right intention thing, mm. and, and this in some regards might might be uh, the the hardest thing to grasp or the the uh, the most weird sounding thing to our modern ear, but there there's a number of uh, Augustine comes to mind um, Quinas comes to mind there are a couple of these thinkers who they would suggest in a way a soldier doesn't even intend to kill the enemy mm-hmm. the soldier kills the enemy if the enemy forces his hand if you yeah. will there's no actual in- killing intention mm-hmm. harbored mm-hmm. in the heart of a, of a morally right soldier um,
0: mm-hmm. and, but notice how how weird that sounds no. yeah and what a slip if you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of the Wars of War simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes as you know I will not feature any ads on the show which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers if you find value in the content you can become one now